Hello, world out there, wherever you are. Welcome to Having a Cuppa. Whether you've joined us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or even on Audible, or for that matter, wherever else you get your podcasts from, I hope you'll truly leave with a notion of nothing other than the hope after you finish each episode. Be forewarned, though, this week's episode is not for the faint of heart. Many of you have come to know me by now, not only for this podcast, but by my rock show, The Tempo Tavern on Bulldogs Radio. Honestly speaking, however, it's a completely different kettle of fish. In that, I play records and I talk about them here and there. For all intents and purposes, it's both light-hearted and fun. But before I became a rock DJ, I covered plenty of hard-hitting news stories, both locally and internationally as a broadcast journalist. However... When it comes to violent crimes, any journalist or broadcaster worth their salt, I think, struggle to maintain a composure or a position of neutrality when reporting on events that could alter the course of history. But, before I get ahead of myself, allow me to introduce my guest first. Kristen hails from the Mountain West region, a woman who has seen far too much, at much too young. Now, There should be one or two people listening by now that should utter under their breath, Oh, so did I. Respectfully said, keep quiet, open your ears, and listen. We never ask for tragedy to occur. It strikes at the most unprecedented moment and can turn our entire existence on its head. This is exactly what happened to her. It all took place in the spring of 1999, in anticipation of the new millennium. Many were preparing with tenacity as to what new rays the century would bring. One sleepy little cluster, situated between Jefferson and Arapahoe counties, suddenly experienced an eclipse, which left the community and its new hope lying shattered into pieces. For Kristen especially, it was a day when the earth stood still. That one sleepy little cluster is a name we'll remember for all time. Columbine, Colorado. In 1999, students Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold would embark on a massacre that would make history. People were getting shot all around me. (laughs) And the name of one Colorado high school, synonymous with tragedy. Children were running from the school at breakneck speeds, and I knew that the world had changed. As the clock ticked, the body count rose. They would pop underneath a a table, they would say something like peekaboo, and they would shoot someone. And with it, the question, why have these two young men waged war on their classmates and teachers and committed the world's most notorious killing spree? That montage you just heard is courtesy of Real Crime and the Investigation Discovery Channels, with music provided by Joe Powers. Where the world simply viewed the aftermath, Kristen saw it unfold with her very eyes. In the years ensuing, this would cause her immense harm. We'll talk about her journey, 
how she went forth from that tragic day onwards, and how she crawled out subsequently from her struggles with alcoholism. As is the norm, you can follow me on Instagram, Chris Nell Media, radio acting music, Chris Nell Media on Twitter, and Chris Nell on Facebook. My website, of course, is as follows, www.chrisnell.co.za. Now, we head off to Colorado to share a cuppa with Kristen. And now, for our feature presentation. Nothing like the finest selection. Nothing like the open road. Let's see where it leads me. My name is Chris Nell. In a burgeoning career spanning half a decade, I've done a bit of everything. I've walked the boards on the stage. I've essayed emotions and intention down the barrel of a lens, and I've kept the public on its toes through the coil of a mic. Now, I've entered the world of podcasting. During my quest, there's many questions that need an answer. There are many voices yearn to be heard, and many stories aching to be told. I want to hear them all. I'm a vagabond with an insatiable curiosity. Now I'm hitting the road. Welcome to my journey. invited to hear the stories and the views of people spanning the globe. You'll be taken places through the odyssey of your imagination. 
From the palm trees of California to the Everglades of Florida, the prairie hills of Alberta, and the cathedrals of Montreal and beyond. Come along as we discover the hidden truths to matters of the heart, matters that knowledgeable people share, artists, activists, advocates, and survivors. They share because they care. People like you and me. Join me as we learn what makes them tick. Sit back and strap yourself in. We're having a cuppa. Kristen, you're here. Welcome to having a cuppa. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly nothing short of a pleasure, my dear. You're most welcome. You know, I have to say this. You and I were supposed to have this recorded the following Friday, but to the audience, here out of the clear blue sky, just the day after we arranged for the interview, she texts me out of the clear blue and says, I've just got a gap open today. If you'd like to do it earlier, I'd be happy to. And I thought... Let's go with it. And it taught me a lesson. Nothing in life in this business has to be picture-perfect, prim and proper. The unexpected surprises really can prove for some marvelous innovation. To begin with, Kristen, you told me that you are a hairstylist by trade. So were you always creative when you were younger? Yeah, I have. I've always loved art, to draw and doodle and... My, using my imagination, my favorite place ever as a child was really just to be by myself with my imagination. So I see. Yeah. As such, did you always enjoy living in your own head, so to speak? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> Trying to find that space where I enjoy being in my head because I'm constantly there. But, you know, lots to work through. But I do recall being little and just loving my solitude. And, yeah, I, I used to love to just draw. Loved art my favorite as a result you were more introverted of course yes definitely yeah hmm. nothing like the imagination i'll tell you that much but by appearance you look like an upbeat bubbly person i can tell now with your chosen trade connecting with people especially with uh hairdressing and i'm saying this from a man's perspective i don't think men truly understand what hairdressing entails because as far as the eye can see, it's all about making women pretty. But it's more than that. It must really be a bomb to connect with people and to build better people skills. Am I right? And even more importantly, good, healthy relationships, working relationships and or otherwise. Oh, absolutely. And that was something I did not even think about or anticipate when I went into my career path because I knew college was not going to be for me. And I, like you said, was very much always girly and into like hair and makeup and stuff. But 
I would say the greatest blessing of all of that has been the unforeseen, <laughs> deep, deep personal connections. Yeah. And you've also described yourself as a sensitive person, which to my mind, being of same caliber, it categorizes you under the umbrella of an empath. So thus you can feel the pain and the joys of others and yet also connect with someone on a deep level. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, of all the positive characteristics that you possess, it surely didn't come without pitfalls. You had been struggling with alcoholism. For how long exactly were you drinking? Um, it was about a 20-year relationship. Wow, two decades. Yeah. And how did it start exactly? I'm not good at math. Uh, neither am I. <laughs> okay, good. First drink at 15 and the writing was on the wall and I'm going to be 38. So <clears throat> minus, you know, two pregnancies and that's about the only time I wasn't using uh, alcohol to check out. So that's a big, big chunk of my life, half of my life easily. Were you what is commonly known today as a functioning alcoholic or were you more the fall down drunk type? Oh, both. I mean, I was, I, I, I always went to work. Well, I can't say always. I tried. I very much um, had people fooled. Let's say that. No, nobody, especially these more more recent years um, in motherhood as I was hiding my addiction. But when I was a young 20-something and partying with all my friends, I was always the one that was just the absolute disaster, blacking out, falling over, losing everything, <laughs> losing my purse, losing my phone, losing a boyfriend, like... Oh, my stars. Debauchery. And seeing that you are in recovery like me, um, do you have a particular binge episode that had a profound impact on you during your dark days, or do they come back to you in bits and pieces? Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty much the story of my life, trying to connect the dots. And so I, I also alternately struggled with like anxiety um, mm -hmm. as a result of just that crazy cycle of trying to piece together, you know, moments of my life. And then alternately I would drink again to kind of numb that feeling. And I mean, I've been, I've quite literally had um, flashbacks from nights where I, I am just scared shitless because I don't remember. And my worst fear is that I am not remembering still to this day terrible things that I either have done or that happened to me. And it's, it's an awful, awful, awful feeling to never know and to feel this kind of niggling underneath that, you know, and the mind is tricky as we all know. And very, you know, yeah. So it's, it's been, it's been terribly difficult to overcome that. I'm still working on it, honestly. And it's all still to come. Bearing in mind you're headed towards your first year of recovery. Fully fleshed sobriety. Forget not, seven months is quite the feat. Congratulations, well done. But take me for example. I'm heading into my third year of uh, sobriety this coming October. And it's only now that I'm starting to experience memories I thought long dead. And a friend made me attempt on this that at any given time you can have a fever dream or a flashback. I remember specifically, I was still in morning radio at the time. And when we were in the hard lockdown initially, alcohol was banned completely in South Africa. 
But as the lockdown progressively started to ease, the local government failed to mention to the media that alcohol was going to become constitutional again. So on this appointed morning, I went to go and purchase coffee. Uh, the studio was located seven paces away. And just then, I saw a flash flood of alcohol in stocked fridges behind the barista. Oh, wow. My palms got clammy. I was short of breath. My stomach turned in knots. And afterwards, after the whole episode, I threw up in the office bin. Major, major anxiety. And when I followed this up with my sponsor, she said the following to me, and I say the following to you. It is imperative to give yourself time. We all focus on accumulating days, D-A-Y-S, and not days, D-A-Z-E. But there's an imbalance currently happening in the system with the protons and the neurons of the brain and the body. Your brain is saying no, but your body still needs to follow suit. So there's that uh, conflict of sorts still occurring. And that's why one should give yourself time, ultimately at your own pace, not at a breakneck pace. It's about progress, after all. That makes sense. So besides drinking to numb the pain from all the painful memories, did you often drink to feel that sense of euphoria? Mm, definitely. <laughs> I loved that. Yeah, and there were some great times too, you know, which is such a such a hard hard thing because they weren't all bad, you know. There were a lot of good feelings and good times and quote good memories what I did remember, you know. But absolutely, I loved that warm escape, the initial feeling of just I'm free, you know. Yeah. Where it feels like you could control the future for a period of about 10 minutes. Exactly. <laughs> Jumping all over the place quickly for a second. Since getting sober, how have you been with regards to temptation? For example, something in front of you, would you just turn around or walk away? Or how exactly do you react in certain circumstances like that? Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, so this is my second time, you could say... A 12 relapse, if you will. The first time I got sober was in 2008, and I worked a 12 step recovery program, and I was able to accumulate a year and a half of sobriety. And at that point in time, I was in my late 20s, still very much surrounded by a lot of people who drank and partied. And it was much different then. I found it really, really hard to be around those situations, and I found myself often very bitter and resentful. <clears throat> Versus now, uh, where I really have chosen this life for me, the first time I did it, I felt the pressure to do it. I was kind of, I had almost an intervention of sorts by my boyfriend. Versus now, realizing finally that alcohol is absolutely poison to my soul and I am glad to be rid of it. I don't feel resentful at all. So I actually have been around friends and neighbors and my husband who will drink sometimes. And it doesn't trigger you whatsoever? No. Wow. Then you are truly blessed in that regard. Kristen, now we get to the more difficult questions. Doing this podcast and speaking to a variety of people from a myriad of backgrounds, before I get what I want to say, you were an alcoholic exclusively. You didn't do hard drugs. Correct. Okay. But in so doing, being an adherent to the 12 steps and doing your personal inventory, you start to dig within the passages of places that you don't want to go to uncover that root, that horror 
that initiated the addiction in the first place. I didn't want to do it, but I knew I had to. But for you, you didn't ask for the tragedy that you had suffered. You're one of the survivors of what would become the Columbine High School massacre back in 99. To the best of your ability and in your own time, what exactly happened to you on that day? Um, that day started like every other day. And interestingly enough, my home life at that time was very tumultuous because I had gone from being a very straight-laced, buttoned-up, good girl. I was always... Um, so alcohol ran in your family, basically. Yeah, I mean, that makes a difference for sure. So I think in some ways... The predisposition was there and I was more in high school the year of the shooting and that same year was when I first discovered my social life with drinking and so like I said from day one it was <laughs> the writing was on the wall um, I was zero to a hundred and so I went from being this really good straight-a student to all of a sudden being introduced to this different social circle. And I loved it. I loved the escape. I loved feeling free for the first time. And my grades slipped and I changed. My parents saw a big difference in me. And so they were desperately trying to grasp onto this little girl they always knew who was such a good girl. And now I was sneaking out of the house and smoking cigarettes and they caught me. You know, I had my tongue pierced and my belly button and my grades were like D's, some F's, like just complete 360 and so my home life you know was pretty pretty like I said tumultuous my parents were very upset with me and that day April 20th 1999 I got in a fight with my mother that morning like many days I told her I hate you I slammed the car door you're fighting about you know she was they were going to send me to a different school the next year and they were going to send me to a disciplinary camp over the summer get me in order and then went about my day and that day um, changed the trajectory of the rest of my life. Obviously, um, I was in the cafeteria on my lunch break. Um, the two gunmen had um, pipe, they'd made these homemade pipe bombs. Their plan was to have these things detonate. They were place throughout the cafeteria and their plan was to have these bombs detonate and basically blow up a large portion of the school, the cafeteria, several, several students, and then basically anyone who was able to escape, they were going to shoot like a video game. And when those didn't detonate, thank God, that's when the gunmen decided they were going to just ambush the school basically and they started shooting outside of the cafeteria. And so. Um, what I remember personally was uh, I didn't hear any of them initially outside. I didn't hear any of the gun shoots, but there was a lot of chaos. Um, I remember one of the janitors running past me and saying, everyone get under your tables, kids get under your tables. And I remember looking towards the back of the cafeteria because my table was at the base of the stairs towards the front and it was like watching if you're at a football game and you see everyone dropping to do like the wave, just this sea of students dropping to the floor. And I did the same. I, I got under the table and somebody yelled, Kosovo's bombing us. And it went 
so fast and so slow at the same time, you know? And I remember thinking, I'm not like, I don't watch the news really, but Kosovo, okay, that sounds like something going on. Are we going to war? Like what's happening? It made me think of those old videos you'd see children doing bomb drills. And I'm like, okay, are we just going to explode? What is happening? Um, I don't, I don't know how long I was under that table with my friends, but then I heard gunshots inside of the cafeteria. I can still hear like, like six gunshots. Um, and that's when it was just a sea of, you know, elephants, tramp, tramp, whatever, stampede is what I'm trying to say. Um, my friend, my good guy friend grabbed me and he grabbed another front. You know, we were just kind of paralyzed under the tables and he grabbed us and we all just ran. And I remember running up the stairs and seeing kids from lunch coming back, walking past us in the hallway and they're looking at us like what is going on and we're like run 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 we don't know why we're running we don't know really even that for our life but um you can hear you know the fire from behind you as I'm running out of the school and I was so fortunate to be able to escape obviously um and like I want to say seriously like 10 of us random random kids piled up into my friend's car across the street on top of each other and just dog piled in and we drove around the neighborhood a few times trying to figure out what the hell just happened I lived pretty close to the school so we ended up going back to my house and to this day I couldn't point out in the yearbook who these kids were that I was randomly with that were in my house like I said several of us sitting on my couch watching the news and my mom comes running in straight past us and she's just white like a ghost and I was like mom and she fell to her knees and she started crying she said I had no idea like she was she was in a store and somebody said oh my god there's a shooting at Columbine and she dropped her stuff and came home and it was just that day we proceeded to watch watch the news and live coverage where you could see bodies you know, laying in the grass, laying in front of the cafeteria, just happening right before our eyes. And we just lived through this. And it was like just a fucking nightmare to try to grasp what was going on. And it's, I'm just now finally dealing with it 22 years later mm. in recovery. So it's been a long time coming trying to process this. I can imagine it must have been. Now, it was worldwide news and it happened when I was rather knee high. But I'd been in college between the years of 2012 and 2014 and I was a journalism major studying for this industry. And as part of the course, we were doing uh, crime reporting and as such, we were shown the documentary Bowling for Columbine. Respectfully on towards Michael Moore, its heart may have been in the right place, but his execution was sloppy because he made it ultimately a satire. <laughs> Here's the kicker, though. About 12 months later, as you might know, it was also worldwide news, Oscar Pistorius, the athlete colloquially known as the Blade Runner, 
shot his girlfriend on Valentine's Day and had opened a Pandora's box with regards to criteria of firearms, much like within the US with gun reform laws. A period roughly of five to six months goes by and here in South Africa, our satellite cable television network is called DSTV. It's the equivalent to TV. Okay. Yeah, and you get the various multiverse of channels. The Crime and Investigation Channel ran a retrospective of what had really happened at Columbine on that day. And they included security camera footage that was located in the school halls, interviews with survivors, all the personnel involved, the 911 dispatches, etc., etc. The mistake that they made was it was an uncut broadcast and they showed it at three in the afternoon that kids could see it and it caused a hell of a fracas. Oh my gosh. And rightly so. I think it's termed differently in the US, but here in South Africa we speak of watershed time, where any sort of content that is capably harmful and can prove harmful to sensitive viewers can air legally within a space of 10pm until 6am the following morning. And with this... I think personally, all the personnel that were involved should have been fired. And the reason why I say it, before content generally goes to air, there's a space of 12 hours where the editors can carefully investigate any content that they get. And if there's anything potentially harmful, at the click of a button, booms, it's erased. In this case, it wasn't. And sadly, these were the repercussions. And I reiterate again, if I was the top brass in charge of that department and I got a complaint of that magnitude, well, I would have fired that personnel without cause because, I say again, it was uncut footage. They even showed a lot of the casualties, the photos, and especially where uh, the two perpetrators committed suicide in the library. Now, you had mentioned that during the shooting in the cafeteria, you guys made an escape. As you guys were trying to get out... Was there at least a risk of being spotted by the gunman or had they already moved on towards other designated areas of the school when you guys tried to flee? Yeah, they had. Um, so if you can imagine a big square shaped cafeteria, my table was towards the front and they came in through the back. So I was one of the first of the quote herd of elephants stampede to escape as the students as they came in from the back because they started they first shot um, their first victims. Um, outside of the cafeteria as they worked their way in. That's where people heard the gunshots, I think, and they thought it was um, towards senior prank week. So a lot of people thought it was a senior prank. Nobody had any idea what was going on. So they heard the ruckus and there was some stirring. And I think as soon as they kind of figured out, oh, this is this is something huge. That's when the janitors were like, get under your tables. This is a big, big deal. But we had no idea still. So they come in through the back of the cafeteria and that's when everyone started to run and being one of the first sets of tables towards the base of the stairs, which led up towards the top of the school and out towards the front doors. I was able to escape pretty, pretty quickly, you know. And subsequently, you didn't have to look around to see if perhaps they caught your scent of you and the other group and perhaps trail you, you guys just bolted. Yeah, I didn't turn around. I just heard the gunshots from under the table. And then that's when I assumed they were either right outside of the cafeteria because it, it was like right, you could, I mean, it was like right behind me, it felt like. So they were either coming yeah. in or they were already in. And I don't know if they were shooting up in the air at that point because there weren't actually any casualties in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. They worked their way from 
then up to the library where the majority of、um, it happened. So even though they had planned to bomb the cafeteria and had subsequently failed. Plan B: Majority of the carnage would take place in the library. Correct. They shot. I think、um, three. There were three casualties. I think outside, but a few other students that were shot and survived outside, and then they came in through the cafeteria back doors. That's when everyone ran and hid. I had friends that hid behind the lunch line. You know, like where the ladies serve lunch and they have accordion doors. Several friends that jumped behind their people jumped and hid wherever they could. So I don't think everyone escaped up the stairs like I did. I was just fortunate that I was towards the front of the mass that I was able to. But then they worked their way、um, up to the library. I think that they shot Dave Sanders、um, in the hallway before they worked. Their way into the library, where the majority of the carnage was. Yeah. I just wanted to say, ultimately, there were 15 casualties, two of which were the perpetrators, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Twelve were students and a teacher. Of the 13, did you know any of them personally? Yeah, yeah.、Um, I grew up with Daniel Mauser. We went to the same elementary school, and I remember him as. Daniel Mauser, of course. His parents erected that memorial garden not long after. Yeah, yeah.、Um, I and he. I mean, I just have to say, he was like just the sweetest, sweetest little boy. And his little sister Christine was just. I remember riding the bus with them. But、um, I digress. I grew up with him, and then my best friend in high school, and for several years, we are no longer friends、um, for other reasons. But her cousin was Rachel Scott. Rachel Scott, yes. Who could ever forget? Yeah, and you know, so I mean, it, it hit home for sure. You know, I went to six funerals in three days. It was just, yeah, it's still surreal. I can well imagine. I can well imagine. And thank you. You were very brave in mentioning, as well, when we prepared for this, and you granted me permission to talk about this. That it was this horrific day that contributed to your alcoholism. If I may ask, in what way exactly ensuing did you start to get nightmares? Did the memories keep playing out in your head? What exactly? Yeah, because you know, after after the shooting, we were you know already dabbling with alcohol before, but much much less. Sorry, much much like I think normal teenagers do. But for us to experience, and I say us, because it it was such an obvious. Attempt to self-medicate for so many of us. My friend group, we latched onto that even more so. And I remember even feeling like, is this like feeling kind of conflicted with this, like, <laughs> like aware of the fact that we were, you know, at least for me personally, I'm like, I know kind of what I'm doing here. I don't want to feel this pain. I just want to escape it. We all just wanted to escape it. And I, I've, I've literally referred to us again. Us as a group of the living dead, because the lives that have been taken from addiction subsequently in the years after suicides, intentionally, unintentional overdoses. I mean, I've lost still several, several former friends and classmates to addiction, and I believe it's directly related to this unhealed trauma that we never, <laughs> you know, even. I don't want to speak at a term here and like, but my my 
dear friend that was, you know, she was my best friend for many years. She lost her cousin. Like I said, even she, she was like, I can't deal with it. And the more time that accumulated, she's like, it's just a can of worms. I can't even open because I'm so scared of how detrimental this will be to my entire world. You know, you, so you just keep numbing. You just keep checking out because it's easier quote than trying to figure out where the hell you start you know i don't know how you heal from any trauma like (laughs) completely but and i don't think personally you ever do something of that caliber i think will always remain with you but ultimately as you go on throughout life you learn to deal with it in a timely efficacy as i mentioned earlier at one's own pace and not at a breakneck pace But it is imperative that you seek help in whichever way possible, speaking with a psychologist, speaking with a counsellor, speaking with your local chaplain or whosoever. Because ultimately, the more that you bottle it up, it will eventually overflow and you'll implode. I did not prepare this originally, but I feel like I should ask. Subsequently, were there any efforts made to help counsel the survivors after the tragedy? Yes, absolutely. And believe it or not, I went several times (laughs) and it was just like a total state of dissociation, but they, the community did try to offer counseling. They had things available, but you know, and I don't, I don't know how many students actually did have success with that. I just know for me, I wasn't. I hear you. I hear you. Getting back to your alcoholism, at what point did you ever reach a bottom that uh, indicated it was time to stop? Hmm. Well, I will say the first time, like I mentioned, was um, from probably it was like a 10 year relationship with alcohol when I first went into recovery. And then, um, like I said, then a 12 year relapse really until seven months ago. So large chunks of time living in personal hell, both different, separate, you know. And after you had stopped for good, what protocols did you make use of? Did you go to AA, rehab? What was at your disposal? Yeah, I went back to AA because that's what I had experience with prior and I knew that that's what worked because when I was very diligent about working my 12-step program many years prior, uh, it was it, it works if you work it. It's the cliche saying for a reason, so... And Kristen, now with seven months of clean time under your belt, you've clearly grown much as a person. Have you come perhaps to view life more differently since getting sober seven months prior? Oh my gosh, so many ways. Um, For me, it's been a massive spiritual overhaul and kind of dissecting my relationship with my higher power. Um, And quick, quick backstory, grew up Catholic and really tried to make that fit in my life for a very long time. And I always thought of my higher power and I call him God as this outward entity outside of myself who I would say to, please, please do me a favor, do me a solid, you know, help me, save me. When I was miserable towards the end, you know, in my addiction, I would literally be on my knees clutching my rosary praying to God, please save me. Please, please, please. I can't do this anymore. Needless to say, 
I, you know, it was like a switch went off one morning. My last night drinking was nothing epic, but I was scrolling through Instagram as I had been following these recovery pages for a while. And one of them popped up and this woman leads the Zoom AA that I had been now attending for seven months. And it was like, duh, go back home, go to AA. But the thing is, I realized in the last seven months that it is all within me the tools i don't need to pray for some outside source to although i give give him i give god you know gratitude for giving me the strength to do what is necessary it's all been within me the whole time and that has been so empowering instead of thinking of it as some outside entity that's going to like hook me up you know realizing i i i have it you know so it's it's a spiritual enlightenment, truly. It's, I don't know if I described that well, but... Quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. You put it quite delicately, yet eloquently. Speaking of social media, perfect segue. As of late, there's been a tremendous growth in the form of visibility with regards to the sober community on social media. And when you began sharing your story, you clearly have been warmly welcomed and appreciated. That certainly has given you a lot of courage to keep moving forward progressively, hasn't it? Absolutely. To share without shame and to be related to and to be understood. It's it's just absolutely, I could I mean it's it's just the best. <laughs> truly, truly. If I may ask, has there been any other tools, maybe even curricularly, that has helped you stay on the straight and narrow? I mean, yeah, it sounds very cliche because it is, but it's it's probably a cliche because it works like journaling and I'm trying to learn how to meditate but more so even I got myself a life coach and so I'm really trying to dig dig in deep and create a safe space for myself internally um, because I love to run I love exercise I love being creative as well I get a lot of that with my job being able to be creative but for me, it's been giving myself and granting myself the grace to have a space just for me in my head and and just in my soul that I don't feel selfish about either, you know? Mm. Mm. And then finally, Kristen, if you had to look at your younger self, if you could travel back in time, as a matter of fact, and you could see your younger self, and for that matter, if anyone similar to the ordeal that you went through is listening. What is it that perhaps you would say to them? Oh my gosh. That you're brave, that you're brave, that you, that you have, you have to face, you have to face what hurts because if you don't, it's just going to create more hurt and it's not your fault. Obviously, even making bad decisions that are your fault, even in addiction, I made terrible choices and I felt like I couldn't, well, I asked for it, you know, whether it's trauma you didn't ask for, or, you know, feeling like you did something to deserve it. It doesn't matter. You have to know that you're worth the fight to heal because life is beautiful on the other side and it's painful and it's hard work, but it's worth it. It really is. It's worth it to feel strong and brave and I would tell myself and anyone else that, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. <laughs> there we are. 
Kristen, if I say thank you, firstly, it's an understatement. Thank you for being so transparent. Thank you for sharing with us what had happened to you. If I'm the only one to say this, I'm incredibly proud of you. You're not just a survivor, you're a warrior. But I won't be the only one to say this. Keep fighting the good fight. We're all standing behind you. You've done well. You've done well. And we'll love you until you learn how to love yourself in AA. (laughs) I love that. I need it. Yes, thank you so much. There we go. You matter, you're needed, and you rock. Keep well. Everything's gonna be alright. Rockabye. Rockabye. This episode is dedicated to the loving memory of the lives who passed tragically 22 years ago on April 20 at Columbine High School, as well as to the lives lost quite recently at Boulder, Colorado forever in our hearts and memories we'll never forget as well a treasured thanks to my guest for her courageous participation in this production That was having a cuppa for this week. We hope you enjoyed this leg of the journey. Until the next time we meet, tell your friends and write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.